Hello and welcome to What the Lux with me, Fred Moore. And me, Anand Sharma. Together we lead Matter of Form, brand and experience design consultancy headquarters in London. And this is a podcast that calls time on tired ideas of luxury. And alongside industry luminaries and thought leaders, we explore what truly defines category-leading products and experiences. When we created Ashoom, we always imagine it as an Irani cafe deeply rooted in an aspect of Bombay history. We then sit down and write a story, a different founding myth, which guides every single detail of that space. And in that sentence, you have an insight into why Deshoom is the hospitality success story of the last decade in the UK. Deshoom is long queues of happy people outside, waiting their turn to get a table. Deshoom is creative and ingenious food in beautiful, bustling environments. But for me, Deshoom is above all that most powerful of human undertakings. It's a big, brave idea. Storytelling that evokes bygone times and exotic cosmopolitanism, that celebrates and shines a new light on Indian culture in Britain, but perhaps most importantly, exemplifies in heroes a universal tolerance of different people and cultural fusion. Today, we're honoured to have on the podcast Kavi Thakkar, co-founder of Dashoom, alongside his cousin Shamil. Kavi, welcome and thank you for joining us today. Thanks very much for having me, Fred. Delighted to be able to spend some time with you. Thank you. And um, we're probably actually sitting about 200 yards away, but for the um, mechanics of recording are in our own respective offices. Are you, are you in Shoreditch today? I'm in Shoreditch High Street, about 150 metres up the road from you, looking probably at the same thing you are out of my window as well. So that's that's quite weird, isn't it? Dishoom is what we look onto. We're delighted to do that. Thanks for joining. So, Kavi, we've got you this afternoon. The first question that we'd love to know is just to tell us a little bit about your background. You've got a really interesting family story, so you can just elaborate on that a little bit. Yeah, thanks. Um, so my background, I guess, for the last 12 years, I've been in the restaurant industry, which is something I didn't have any experience with before Deshume. So after leaving university, I actually went into developmental finance in uh, Washington, D.C. So I worked for part of the World Bank Group. Um, and I spent the first part of my career in all, all parts of the world doing development to finance, working with interesting people from all over the world and really learning analytics and how to do cool deals and how to really try and make an impact um, onto people that you know may need a step up in their lives. So that was really fascinating work and I learned a lot. And after that um, stint in America, I came back to the UK and, and joined my family business. And so my family had a rice business that uh, was started by my father, my uncles and my grandfather. Um, so upon returning to London 2008, I um, joined the family business, which is a business called Tilda, Tilda Rice. And I spent a few years there before we opened Dishoom in 2010. So my journey has, has not in my career been one that maybe people who are running a restaurant business typically take, but uh, I don't know for my sins or not, but uh, I really enjoy what I'm doing now. So here, here we are. We'll get on to Dishoom. I'm just interested in the connection to India. Can you just tell us tell us about that, how far back that goes? Yeah, absolutely. So my, my family is originally of Indian heritage, so my grandparents were born there. And then actually growing up, I spent quite a lot of my childhood in India with our family business. My father and grandfather went back to India when I right around the time I was born. So we were starting a business out there. Um, well, they were starting a business out there and I was tagging along, probably being a pain in the butt rather than being any help at, at age one th- through 10. But we we spent tons of time there and my dad was traveling a lot from India. So I spent a ton of time with my grandparents as well. So it was a really formative time in my life that I spent back in India with, with the family. But I was always at school here in the UK. I was um, you know, in London, then I was at boarding school and then 
of university up in Scotland. So it was, uh, India was a really important part of my childhood growing up and it continues to be now. I love it. Yeah. So, so apart from the obvious, your connections with India, tell us about where the idea for Dishoom came from and what made you both start it. Dishoom has a really fascinating slice of heritage that we really, really adore in Bombay. And if you wind back your minds 12 years to to what Indian food was was like in London in 2010, which is when we opened, you kind of had really, really good chef-led Michelin-starred restaurants that you'd go to for a special occasion or perhaps a business dinner or business lunch that were expensive places, exceptional food, but really um, not places you could go every day. They were kind of expensive to go to. And then we had this fabulous tradition of the curry house, which again is what most people would in 2010 thought of as, as Indian cuisine. And both those things, either the Michelin star restaurants or the curry houses, are fabulous establishments, but neither for us felt typically or traditionally or felt like India. And, you know, back in 2010, when you said to someone, Indian restaurant or India, people tended to think somewhat in stereotypes because that's what comes easily was maybe cricket, maybe Bollywood, maybe the Taj Mahal and maybe Days of the Raj. Those are probably the first four things that come to your mind. Whereas India obviously is a huge, huge country with one point something billion people. It's hyper diverse. It's got so much to offer. And actually, if you go to Bombay, or um, you'll notice that it's very urban and very creative and it's, it's a melting pot of cultures. So for us, we love the tradition of the curry houses. We love the fabulous food of these Michelin-style restaurants. But we really wanted to tell a story about uh, places that were steeped in something that we connected to back in Bombay, that when you walked in or brought a member of your fr- family or friend friend group to, they could say, oh, this feels like home. And the food reminds me of what I get back at home. Or it has, for us, it was about comfort food and just rejogging that imagination that imagination and that memory and and transporting you to another place i suppose it's it's so clear the idea of it but uh, what did your friends and family think at the time i mean do they think you were mad because the clarity of the idea amazing but it's not the easiest trade to enter it's not the easiest business to do well in it's it's a stupid idea Let, let's be perfectly honest i mean it's myself and shamal who are the co-founders and we actually had back in 2010 a couple of other founders with us who were business for a couple of years but imagine going to somebody and say, no, we've got an idea for relatively well-educated, relatively successful, smart people think, oh, you know, we'll open an Indian restaurant in London. It doesn't sound like the best business idea. Of course it doesn't. And and really, if you think about immigration, that's kind of what the first generation of immigrants typically do is tend to hospitality and tend to restaurants so that their kids don't have to. And kind of we're the third generation of immigrants yeah. going back into hospitality. So it's kind of a weird circle. <laughs> but um, people just thought we we're mad. And of course, like you said, it's it's not the easiest industry to to do uh, well in. It's incredibly tough. It faces big economic challenges, big customer challenges. Uh, property is obviously frightening for people. So it's very, very choppy waters for many, many people. And I guess we in 2010, I guess naively, or I think that that played a big part into it, didn't have a ton of experience in that. So we kind of maybe took a slightly fresher approach to it than than others may have done before us. Yeah, yeah, which is interesting, isn't it? Because you kind of turn some of the concepts of um, the restaurant industry or hospitality on its head, for example, not cutting costs, you're quite prepared to spend way and above in terms of fit out or in other things, aren't you to make assume what it is? Yeah, for, uh, for us, I think we've never really been 
a fi- you talked about cutting costs, a financially led business. For us, this is really about telling a story, but transporting people to a time and place, but also doing things that make you feel a certain way. And we obviously do lots of stuff, and perhaps we'll talk about that, to make you feel that way. But ultimately, what we're trying to do for anybody that comes into Dishroom is, is leave them feeling great, ultimately. And a ton of work goes into that. But that means that you can't cut corners because all of a sudden people start feeling that it's not great. Um, whether it is a less comfortable sofa that you're sitting on or the, the cut of meat you're using isn't as good or the, the plate is a bit cheaper. All of those things subconsciously will let you know that we perhaps care a little bit less. And so for us, it's making sure that we really give you a great, great experience. And of course, we mess things up quite often, right? We're all human. But the intent is to make you really leave feeling with your heart and your belly full. And we we kind of like to think that we give you a a five-star experience for a three-star price. I am genuinely proud of the food we serve people. I think it's some of the best Indian food you get anywhere in the world with some of the warmest hospitality. Of course, it's not fine dining hospitality with some of the most beautiful interiors in the hospitality industry as well. So all of those things packaged up and the price is £30. That's kind of you know, just ten pounds more than Pizza Express, perhaps. So for us, it's really about giving you great value for a really exceptional experience. Zoning in on what it is you actively do to to create that experience, and maybe framing it in the prism of, of what you set out to do at the very beginning, and what you've kind of accidentally discovered on the way. Like, for example, did did you think you'd have these huge queues, and that would almost become a calling card of Dishoom? Is the fact that you have to queue for I don't know, upwards to an hour, an hour and a half to, to get a table? <laughs> yeah, that's a really good question. So when we started out, let, let me be perfectly honest, we didn't know our head from our asses, right? We'd, none of us had worked in restaurants before. And we were trying to figure it all out. And I mean, I spoke to you a little bit about what my career background was, but it was much more business and analytical than hospitality. And at that time, if you're trying to make money, think about your costs and thinking about, well, okay, this is the revenue I'm getting. How do I manage my costs? I can make a little bit of money at the bottom of the page. In hospitality, that's the worst way to run a business. And for the first few years, 18 months, that's how we were trained. That's what we're thinking about. But very quickly, we realized the way to a successful business in hospitality was just by having awesome food and drink, awesome service and a happy team. And that sounds really simple to say, but it's very difficult to get an organization to focus on those th- three things because they seem so unmeasurable. How do you have awesome food and drink? How do you have awesome service? And how do you measure your team happiness? But that's what we realign the business to focus on. And all of a sudden, the quality of what we did went through the roof. The happiness of our team went through the roof. Our conversations were about how do we make it better for the guests? How do we make this plate of food more delicious? How do we design this space to be even more beautiful or to transport you even more deeply into Bombay rather than, oh, it's three o'clock in the afternoon, there's no, no customers, send somebody home because that's going to save us you know, 10 pounds an hour. So once we reframed in our minds what we were doing as an organization, that really turbocharged, I guess, the the, the feeling our our customers left with our guests we're leaving with. The word of mouth was exceptional. And that led to the queues. And I hate the fact that there's a queue for our restaurants. I wish that there wasn't. But something we wanted to do in our businesses, make it really democratic and accessible to all. So 
Fred, if you and I wanted to go for lunch or supper today, we could go. And yes, perhaps we have to wait an hour and a half, but that's the trade-off we'll have to make to be having a meal together tonight. Many other businesses will take only bookings. And if you and I wanted to go for dinner tonight, well, we would have had to book that eight weeks ago. And that's not the kind of place we wanted to have. We wanted to have a place that friends could just bump into each other and come in for a drink or come in by yourself. Or, And it was just a bit more democratic, so it was accessible to all. But the small price you pay is uh, having to, to wait for that table for a little while. And yet, for me, it's really important that the people waiting, if you had a dinner party at home and you had 10 people around and only six seats at the table, you'd probably really look after the people standing outside, you know, the four of people that didn't make it in. And, and we, we really look after the people that are waiting to come into our restaurants as well, because we totally understand standing in the rain on a January morning or on a January evening, <laughs> waiting for your supper isn't the best place to be, but we try and make it as comfortable as possible. Yeah, and it's so evident there's a sort of, um, there's a passion and a joy for people behind the shoe that you just don't get in nearly every other um, restaurant that, that is a chain or a series of restaurants. It almost seems like the people element has been left last, especially how they treat their staff, for example. But coming back to the beginning of it, clearly right at the beginning and alluded to this introduction, that there was, a, there was this idea of the story and the kind of cultural reference for that, uh, the cafes in, in Bombay, the Iranian cafes, and, and the fact that all sorts of life and society would mix in those in what is, as you say, it's a diverse, multicultural, incredibly complex and fused society, um, India, at its best. What's behind that? There's obviously something more than just the story of Iranian cafes. What did you and your cousin... What were you thinking about using that as the starting point for the Dishoom story? It's really interesting because for us, we we framed, obviously, what existed in the space of Indian food before. And we wanted to tell a different story and and bring it back to storytelling. And and we spent a lot of time as as youngsters in Bombay. And funnily enough, Shamal had his first birthday in an Irani cafe. But what resonates resonated with us about the Irani cafes, and we spent time in those growing up, was that it was the people that owned these places and that opened these places were being persecuted in Iran. And they they basically came to Bombay and set up these places, Irani cafes, that serve very humble food, tea, eggs, bread, biscuits, nothing fancy. But they were really, because these people were outsiders, they opened their doors to everybody. And so it when you go to these places, you will see families, business people, kids on their way to school. Um, you'll see taxi drivers. You'll see lawyers. You'll see all of Bombay together in a shared social space. And and the Irani cafes were really the first time people in India, or certainly Bombay, were eating out socially in a mixed environment. Typically, you'd eat at home. You'd eat at your work canteen if your work provided food, or you'd perhaps eat at your place of worship. But there were very few places that people went out socially to eat, hundred whatever it was, 120 years ago in Bombay if you were Indian. But these places were that. So it was really that the magic that happens when you break bread with people from a different background, that sense of understanding, that sense of celebration, that sense of conversation, of... Um, having a shared history, a shared place, and weaving your stories together, even though you're from such different backgrounds. And it's maybe a bit romantic, but I don't think it is. I think that certainly at Dishoom, when you come to Dishoom, you will notice that you have A-list celebrities, you have billionaires, you have students, you have tourists, you have regular folk, you have everyone 
And I don't think there's other places in London that you get that, that you literally have a, a tourist or a backpacker spending 20 quid and the world's richest people spending 150 over the same food and environment and, and place. We're very separated as a society. Yeah, it strikes me as the opposite of a members club in form, but you achieve what every members club tries to achieve, but fail to do by nature of it being a members club of homogenous people. But they all want that breaking bread and shared experience that they want that and they don't achieve it always. For us, it's magical because and one thing I was really proud of when we first started Dishoom was that sense of pride that people took in in their experience or the experience they got. You would have non-Indian people sharing Dishoom if they discovered it with their Indian friends saying, look at this thing I found. It's amazing. It's cool. And it's Indian. You're going to love it. But equally, you'd have it the other way around where Indian people are incredibly proud of it, which bring their non-Indian friends and saying, come check this out. It's Indian and it's different and it's cool. And I think you'll love it. So we had this amazing cross-fertilization of love of people that really enjoyed what, what Dishoom was able to do for them. So when, when you're thinking about expanding an expansion of Dishoom, how much do you struggle with the concept of more restaurants? I think you've got nine restaurants at the moment. How much do you struggle with the idea of remaining true to what you set out to do and what you know you can do with um, taking it to new places, perhaps even new countries? I don't know if you've considered that. Yeah, that's a great question. So we are, are very blessed with, as you described, a, a over, over demand for our products, right? So it would make great business sense. And many people told us this several years ago. Well, A, you could just put up your prices and make more money because there's more people that want your product than you're charging. And like, well, yeah, that's not exactly what we're trying to do. Or just open lots and lots of more, more locations. And if you think about the kind of restaurants that opened up in the same kind of time as we did, there was people like Byron or Oaxaca. Those guys all opened at a similar time. They have, or they had, many, many, many more restaurants than us. I don't know how many restaurants Byron had, 70 restaurants. We have nine. Our business is probably larger than Byron's ever was. With nine locations, they had 70. And and I think that it didn't necessarily make the clearest business sense just to plod along and open one restaurant a year effectively, um, rather than find a format and copy-paste it. And that's really not what we're about. And we have a mantra in our business, which is deep and don't dilute. And we everything that we do the next restaurant we open we want to stand there at the end of the opening and say god that's our best yet and then do the same the year after so we really drive our team not to say well that's good enough or well that's just as good as the last one but next year or the next opening or the next meal has to be better than the last and so that's something culturally takes time that you can't speed up and so we're not like i said to you earlier on we're not necessarily driven by numbers on a page rather than building a brand and building a business that people love working in, people love interacting with, people love coming to. And I, I truly believe you can only do that if you focus on making it excellent. If you focus on growing it, you'll make the wrong decisions. And, and would you ever take Dishoom outside of the UK? Sure. I think that, that, that what we've done with Dishoom in the UK is, is fascinating and it seems to have really struck a chord with not only people in London, but we get people from all over the world coming to Dishoom. In fact, we get people off the plane from Bombay and the first meal they come to in London is Dishoom, um, which is extraordinary to me. Um, but we also get people from the state. We get people from all over the world. So I think Dishoom as a brand appeals to people from all over the world than as, as, as a restaurant. But for us, again, it's not about spreading ourselves too thinly. We really want to focus on what we do and making it brilliant. And we've got plenty of of stories still left to tell in the UK. So, I mean, we have Edinburgh, Birmingham and Manchester. And in fact, our first restaurant outside of London was Edinburgh. And 
people were eye-opening in Edinburgh and it was a great opportunity in a, in a beautiful building that we allowed us to tell a different story. Kavi, each Dishoom has its own feel and it's grounded in the foundations of your brand, but how do you flex the brand to create new iterations and experiences in all these different locations to excite and delight new guests? We're really lucky in that Bombay is a living, breathing city with a fabulous history. So whenever we find a new site, we really think about when that site in London or in the UK was in its heyday. So a, a great example of that is a site in High Street Kensington where we're in a beautiful old deco building called the Barker's Building. And so it's a really famous London deco landmark. And and so not many people know this about Bombay, but it has the most deco buildings in the world after Miami. And at the same time, deco was coming into Bombay. And the timing of this is a bit weird. Jazz also found its way to Bombay. So for us, we were really trying to celebrate what was happening in London and Bombay. So we told a story about deco and jazz when we went into High Street Kensington, which is very different to the story that we told in Edinburgh where we went into a building that is um, very rooted in the, in the, in the 20s. And uh, Edinburgh has a great heritage of education and uh, academia. So we found a great character called Patrick Geddes, who was a Scotsman that spent a ton of time in Bombay and established a few departments of the, some of the universities in Bombay. And so we always find these stories that connect the two places in that time. And then we write a fictional story. And with that story, we then go back to Bombay and design the restaurant. So for us, we're very fortunate that we can find these beautiful buildings in the UK and then uncover and tell these wonderful stories about what was happening in Bombay at the time and, and draw the connection between the two places. And then, Kavu, I sort of I don't want to touch on the negative aspects of COVID. I think we've all talked about that uh, enough in, in the last couple of years. But I'm fascinated by the things you're now doing that you wouldn't have done were it not for COVID. Can you just talk about those? Yeah, sure. So when um, restaurants got shut down in, in March 2020, it was all we did. That was our entire business. We had eight restaurants, about 900 people working here at Dishoom. And literally, we had no revenue. So we kind of had to think about what do we do? We didn't know how long this was going to last. And, and so we did two things. We did many things. But one of the things we did was launch a delivery business. So Dishoom is now able to be delivered to your home if you live near one of our delivery kitchens, which is fabulous because we ultimately grew our business during COVID and continue to serve guests the, the, the warmth and the love uh, that they were looking for during the, that, that period. So that was something that we're incredibly proud of. And we now have 13 delivery locations across the UK. Um, and then something else that we did was a products business that that delivers not hot food, but other products to people's homes, whether it's spice tins or chai kits or meal kits for them to either cook at home or or have in their in their house to use during during their day. So not hot food. So we really developed these two new businesses ultimately that have stuck with us post-COVID. So now I mentioned that we had eight restaurants going into COVID and about 900 people. We now have nine restaurants, 13 delivery locations and a, a store that sells people products and about 1,800 people. So during lockdown, we ultimately doubled the size of our business, which is super cool. Yeah. So um, like most of us for COVID, some bad, but there are several silver linings from that time. Yeah, exactly. And and, and we learned the power of teams. We learned the power of, of innovation. And, and it was a startup time, right? You had to do something. You, you know, the 
self-evidently, as if you said, everyone listening to this will have been to Dishoom pretty much. And the food is, is unbelievably good. But the, the other aspect which we touched on is staff, which so many, uh, again, we touched on this, so many hospitality businesses fail at this. How have you approached that differently? How is it? You can tell every time you walk into the shoot, the staff are absolutely psyched to work there. They're really on side, um, charming, hospitable. How, how do you do that? It's absolutely fascinating. Oh, thanks. I'm glad that you feel that. I think that for us at the core of Dishoom, it's looking after people. You can have the best food in the world and, and you can have beautifully designed restaurants. But that's, for me, the ticket to the, that's the, the, ticket to the game. If you can't make good food and have a beautifully designed restaurant, people aren't going to come, right? So what are they coming for? People come to a restaurant to relax, to be looked after, to have a great time with their friends or family, whoever they're with, or, or just get a piece of bit of peace and quiet for themselves. And and for us at Deshoom, we have something at the core of our business called Sever. And Sever is a Sanskrit word, but it means selfless service. And so for us at Deshoom, the way we practice Sever is doing everything with a, a big open heart, so with a lot of love, but also in a truly first-class way, so to the best of our ability. So when you come into Deshoom, we really hope that whoever's looking after you or everyone that looks after you does so with a lot of love, with a really big heart, but also in a really first-class way. And, and and we think that when you do everything with a big heart and in a first-class way, that's when you get sever and that's when people feel looked after. So we're able to have great conversations with our teams about how can we make it better for the guest? How can have that experience been better? Or what could we have done that that maybe didn't leave them feeling great and how do we fix that next time so for us it's about giving our teams the ownership of their relationship with the guests or their relationships with their own teams to really do everything in a big-hearted first-class way and and when people are empowered they really care about it and and i i i i don't think you should be in hospitality if you don't like, like looking after people fundamentally if you're doing it for any other reason you're in the wrong you're in the wrong game yeah yeah definitely and um Another side to stream, I mean, you're obviously um, rooted in heritage and history and, and a timeless brand in some respects of, of what you do, the experience in hospitality, the Indian food. But how do you balance that with an approach to using what's out there in terms of technology or the latest in this or that that you can use to your advantage? And do you do that? I, I like to think we do. I'm sure we're not as cutting edge as other other brands in hospitality. But for us, we always look at everything from the lens of transporting you back to Bombay to a specific time and place. That's the core of what we do. However, for us, we want to make sure that your experience, either as someone that works in the business or someone that's a guest in our business, you have a really great experience. So if you're talking about things such as technology, we we want technology to enhance your experience and never detract from it or, or get in the way of your experience. So as much as possible, we like technology to be invisible. Um, and a lot of it is in our business, which is great because it just allows you to be looked after. It allows our team to do extraordinary things. But at the same time, a restaurant is about being looked after. It's about humans interacting. It's about humans preparing food. It's about the way that the the server brings your food over or the bar, the, the lady at the bar makes a cocktail. It's the noise, it's the sound, it's the smell. That's all of the stuff that makes you feel a certain way. The way that you the, you book the restaurant is insignificant in your in, in the process or 
of course, we can make it smoother and we can have lovely people answer the phone or we can have a booking system or we can have a WhatsApp system. That's all fine. But at our core, it's about making sure you have a great experience and a great time whilst you're in our care. So we're never going to be the most cutting edge restaurant business, but we do um, try and make sure that everything that's available to make your experience better, we can enhance it with that. Just zooming out a little bit from Deshoom into the industry a bit, when Deliveroo came along, I'd be really interested to see how you as co-founders, how you sort of initially took that and what your response was, which which is kind of evident. But talk us through that. So I, I think D- Deliveroo was met with mixed responses in, in London. So we as Londoners love takeaway. We as Londoners love convenience. But it was very important to us, and I can't speak for others, but it was important for us as a business to safeguard our restaurant experience and restaurant proposition. So something that we quickly noticed with Deliveroo was that many restaurants would be prioritizing delivery orders going out the front door. So guys and girls with helmets coming through the front door with order 795, getting food ahead of customers who are sitting in there investing their time and their money so someone on a scooter can get food out the front door. And that for me would completely detract from that transporting you to a time and place. So something that we were really adamant on was that we didn't want to do anything, even when delivery came along, that would detract from delivering a fantastic in-restaurant experience for our guests. So that was fundamentally really important to us. So we never had done delivery before COVID. Um, so that was something something new to us. But for us, it was, we were really blinkered on making the in-restaurant experience for our guests magical and making it awesome. And what isn't awesome is waiting an hour and a half, like you mentioned, and 55 scooter drivers also being there at seven o'clock getting food ahead of you. That's that's the opposite of magical. Yeah, yeah, agreed. I'd be interested as well, since launching Dishuma in 2010, have you noticed any sort of discernible, noticeable changes in customers' wants and needs? Have you seen any trends in that 10-year, 12-year period? That's a great question. I, I, I think yes, for sure. If I just think about the way we thought about food and drink, at first, only from a Dishuma point of view, we were educating people as well about what Indian food was. So we opened our restaurants with a breakfast and people didn't really know what breakfast was so i think now people so over the 10 12 years that we've been open people really understand indian food is an all-day event certainly at dishoom you can come at eight in the morning and have breakfast a delicious omelet or some delicious bacon on rolls have a lazy lunch or have a boozy dinner all of those things are possible and funnily enough people in india eat breakfast so um, it's a real thing but back in 2010 <laughs> that that wasn't an obvious thing people thought, oh, an indian restaurant with breakfast how weird um, so that was part of the education. In terms of macro trends, and I think what we experience at Dishoom has probably changed, we've seen a whole load of people become a lot more health conscious. So a few years ago, we went through lighter lunches and salads. We saw a bit of a trend with people really thinking about organic foods. We saw, I think that's come off the boil. We had a bit of a trend with people thinking about uh, animal welfare and free range as being hyper important, but that again has come off the boil a little bit. Um, Climate has obviously come to the forefront now. So we see a lot of people that are making non, non-meat non or non-animal choices, so animal-free choices, vegan choices or vegetarian choices for climate reasons rather than for welfare reasons. So you can see trends in how people are doing that. And people have become more health conscious again because of calories going on menus, which is affecting how people think about what they put on their menu. So that has all happened. Um, but people are looking for more flexible diets, whether it's more vegetables, less meat, more fish, that is definitely true. 
And also we're seeing a, a rise of younger people drinking less. So we went through a phase of typical glitzy, bubbly cocktails, mocktails. and beers to yeah. mocktails, which were all a bit rubbish. Then we went to very serious drinks about nine years ago. And now again, we're back into less serious, fruitier, retro drinks, but also alcohol-free alternatives. So I think what we're seeing is generationally a new consumer coming into the market rather than... So I think that's what's happened in the last 12 years is that people who are now in their early to late 20s who weren't consumers of restaurants 10 years ago are now consuming in line with their lifestyle. Nearly every one of our clients in hospitality, they're kind of obsessed by this concept of loyalty. Can you just talk us through how you at Deschooms see loyalty? We're totally shit at it. <laughs> it's, we're really bad. Um, I think loyalty is critical. Um, we, we're not very good at measuring it, but I don't think that's the point of loyalty, to measure it. So lots of people get fixated on measuring it and seeing if something you do for a customer is repaid in the future and the lifetime value of a customer and what's the cost of equity. Like, I don't really care about all of that. I fundamentally believe that if you really look after someone, they'll tell somebody else about the experience. That person will either come back, they'll bring somebody back or the person they've told will come. So for me, loyalty is about building great experiences in the moment that allow people to share that experience. And I think that gets paid back and maybe we can't measure it, but we know that we have people who are fanatical about what we do, that love sharing it. We kind of love recognizing that. So as much as we can, and we have busy restaurants, we love recognizing people that come to us and, and over and over and over again. And I've got a, a text the other day or a tweet the other day from somebody that has counted every single time he's been into Dishun in his life and is at 97 times. Right. So that on average, I mean, say over 10 years, is basically once a month, which is extraordinary. So he comes to this room every 30 days. And we know him now, obviously. Um, and there was a couple of crazy guys that when the lockdown got lifted briefly last summer or summer before last, they got up very early in the morning and drove to every single Dishoom in the UK. And at that time, we had eight. So they started in London and ended in Edinburgh lunch in Manchester, lunch or Birmingham, lunch in Man late lunch in Manchester, and then dinner in, Bur in Edinburgh. And we greeted them with, you know, a huge fanfare and all these balloons because they were you know, doing Instagram stories the whole way up. And, and so loyalty for us is really about building that connection with, with guests that allow them to tell us their stories. We also have this thing called a Macca, which is a keychain that we have at all of our restaurants. And that really is to recognize our regular customers, our regular guests that come in. And it's, it's just a bit of fun, which is if you come in, uh, I think it's during the week for before supper. So people that come during the day that use it like a local, that instead of getting the bill, if they show us a little, this little keychain, we give them a dice. And if they roll a six, the entire meal is on us, whether it's two of them or 20 of them. And one of my favorite things about being in our restaurants is uh, if I'm having a meeting with somebody and then you hear like these 20 cheers, hooray! It's um, a table that I've just rolled a six and <laughs> you've comped their entire meal. And for me, that just builds so, loyalty. So part, part of you is di dying at that moment. <laughs> not at all. It's the opposite. I mean, we've just made 20 people's day. Uh, so it's the opposite of dying. And yeah. That's exactly why I get up in the morning is to make people smile. And, and small acts like that, I mean, yeah, sure, they cost a little bit of money, but I think it's priceless in the, in the experiences you're able to give people. 
Yeah, exactly. I, and I think sort of large, complex, proactive loyalty schemes or systems are they're right in some industries or for some sort of scaled organizations but it's a bit like asking the owner of studio 54 in new york in the 80s like well, what loyalty scheme do you have and he'd just look at me probably if i asked that question and go are you mad like you just make an amazing experience and people want to come back make it awesome yeah 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 exactly what would be really interesting as well is that we talk a lot on this podcast around our interpretation of luxury we work for luxury brands we define that as um category leading we we really like to challenge traditional conventions of luxury do you consider yourself a luxury brand on your definition as as industry leading people would argue perhaps we are on a more traditional definition of what luxury is which is arguably unobtainable exclusive i would say we're not we work very hard at being a democratic band that's very accessible to everybody um, whether it's in for a three pound cup of tea or a, or a big splash out meal to celebrate your birthday we are really trying to build a business in which everybody and anybody feels welcome either as a guest or as a team member and for me that perhaps is the ultimate luxury that you just feel at home and everyone feels at home but we're certainly not trying to build anything exclusive yeah and i think um you know you go back to the premise of the irani cafes in bombay and the array of diners from different wealth brackets and backgrounds so ironically it's every luxury brand in hospitality is probably trying to copy you but your definition <laughs> would be very different from from what i think those brands would do that's the great um irony Kavi, i'd love to know also about giving back you've obviously clearly got a sense of responsibility beyond your own business and the pnl and can you can you just talk about that yeah, sure. So we, we we have a fantastic initiative, which is a meal for a meal. I'm incredibly proud of that. We well, let me tell you how it started. In in 2015, we were sitting around a table of lunch, as we often do at Dishoom, and we were talking about Ramadan. Um, it was a, it was a holy month, and one of my colleagues was fasting, and we really started talking about what Ramadan meant to his community and to him and in Islam and. I'm not Muslim. Uh, he is. My wife is Muslim. But we're really trying to understand the importance and the significance of it to him. And a big part of Islam, which is a very charitable religion anyway, but during Ramadan, people go above and beyond and do an act of charity called zakat. And we thought, well, wouldn't it be really interesting to do as a business an act of zakat this month of Ramadan in 2015? And we decided that for every person that came to Dishoom in that month, we would feed hungry kids for basically on a one. In fact, at that time, it was a a meal that you ate in Dishoom. We would donate a meal to a kid in India and a kid in London. And that was great. Something we did. We fed probably 200,000 kids in that month, which was amazing. Um, and then a few months later, we were talking about Diwali, a Hindu festival. So we'd understood a, a Muslim festival. And this goes back to a little bit about understanding people's backgrounds and celebrating other people's cultures and that cosmopolitanism yeah. of the Irani cafes. So we understood this thing in Islam. And then in Diwali later that, that year, we said, well, what should we do for Diwali this year to mark Diwali? And we decided to make that act of zakat that we'd done for Ramadan permanent in our business. So for every person that eats at Dishoom, we donate a meal uh, to a hungry kid, both here in the UK through a partner charity called The Magic Breakfast, and also back in India through a partner charity called Akshaya Patra. And to date, I think we fed over 15 million kids in the last seven years. So for us, it's a really important initiative that allows us to give a little bit back to those um, people that are much more needy than us. And we're very fortunate. Um, so it's nice to be able to 
make a little bit of a difference. Do you think you also play in a sort of subtle way quite an important role in the Indian culture in the UK? You know, India's a big part of our country from a historical point of view, from a people point of view. Do you think you're changing perceptions or, or some of the cultural dynamics there? I, I wouldn't like to take credit for that, but I would say that the perceptions of Indian culture has certainly changed in the last 15 years for sure. And one thing that I love doing is outside of restaurants, Dishim, we celebrate all these cultural events. So like we were just talking about Reed and Ramadan and, and Diwali. And last Diwali, this is a great example. We host a big festival in somewhere in East London, probably in Shoreditch this year. And we get down so much cool Southeast Asian culture, whether it's dance, music, artists, spoken word, street food. It's a really creative community. And then we sell tickets and what I love, out of the thousand people that come, half of them aren't Indian or Hindu. So what I love is being able to share as a business the culture that we're proud of, these really important events in Bombay's cultural calendar with people that otherwise wouldn't be celebrating those things, who just come for a great night out in London to eat delicious food, listen to great music with their friends. So for me, yes is the answer to the question. And I think we're part of that, playing our role in in sharing the culture that we're proud of with people. Yeah, it, it's a big and positive theme, but you definitely are part of it. Just on the sustainability side, you've you've talked about how sort of certain guest trends come and come and go a bit, or emphasis at least comes and goes. But what initiatives do you have in place on sustainability, which, as we all know, is a concrete, solid thing here to stay? Yeah, absolutely. So we think about sustainability in several ways here. Obviously, one is the, the food that we're actually consuming. So is that coming from responsible sources? We, we work very hard at knowing our producers, whether it's farmers or growers or greengrocers or, or fishermen. And, and for us, we really, really work hard at partnering the whole way through our food supply chain to make sure we're, we're sourcing our food responsibly. But also, when you step back and think about, are we looking after our planet as a race? The answer to that question is no. Uh, we're screwing it up for our kids. So we have, over the last several months, years, I can't remember, it's been going on a while now, is really thinking about how someone eating at Dishon, or when someone eats at Dishon, what is the impact? What's the carbon footprint of that meal? And so we have worked incredibly hard to understand that, A, so thinking about all the energy, all the food and the energy that goes into making the food, opening the restaurants, building the restaurants, cooking the food, all of that stuff, so that we know when Fred comes to eat a dish, it costs the world this much carbon. So we now know that. So there's two things you can do. One is, A, reduce that number. Uh, so instead of being seven, make it five. How do you just cleverly get to five without devaluing what you're doing for the guests in restaurant? Because it's easy to get to five and make it a terrible experience. Well, that's easy. But the hard thing is to make it less bad for the planet whilst being still a great experience. And then the other thing is responsibly offsetting all the stuff that you can't get rid of in your supply chain. So we, we think about all of that stuff really seriously and, and we make sure that we do our part to, to help the planet where we can. So we always ask our guests the same four questions on these podcasts. The first question we ask people is what most irritates you about your industry? Well, what most irritates me about my industry is the fact that people don't see working here as a career. I think people think of working in hospitality as, a, as an unskilled, as transient, as low talent. And 
for me, it's the opposite of that. It's selfless, it's big hearted, it's looking after others, and you learn great life skills. So that's, I think, what would irritate me most about my industry is the perception of it from outside. That's so. Do you think that's a peculiarly British problem that work in hospitality? Uh, yeah, I think so. I think when, whenever I travel, people are incredibly proud of hospitality in a way that we're perhaps not of our own hospitality industry. So when you go to the States, people have great careers in hospitality. In, in Europe, people really it's many many people's family businesses and people spend a lifetime working in hospitality so it may be a british thing i'm not sure yeah i mean we lecture at the swiss hotel school and it just it's just worlds apart from the attitudes to work in hospitality in the uk i agree with that the second question we ask is what most concerns you about the world we're leaving the next generation i think there's this moment in time i think incredible and irresponsible overconsumption of stuff so we buy and buy and buy and just throw away and throw away and throw away and just think, well, tomorrow I'll buy another one. And it's become hyper easy to consume. So the likes, obviously, of Amazon Prime, I order something and I expect it here by midday tomorrow. And I don't think about the impact that's leaving for our kids. And so I think that that is a problem of today. And I think the problem is that not enough of us that are causing the problem are working on fixing it. We're expecting the next generation to fix it. And I think perhaps that's the problem, is that we're expecting the kids to sort out the problems that grown-ups have made. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I think the kids will sort it out. They're incredible what the new generation, younger people, have learnt compared to us, but it doesn't take away our responsibilities. If you had to give up your job tomorrow, Kavi, what would you do? I would love to be involved in some sort of education. So I'm pretty involved in my children's school already. But I think being surrounded by young people is A, really energizing, but B, allows you to hopefully make them responsible grown-ups. So I, I think, I don't think I'm smart enough or have the patience enough to be a teacher, but maybe, you know, a library assistant or so, anywhere that would take me in a school to let me, <laughs> let, let me help the kids a little bit. That's wonderful. And um, our very last question, what's the most exciting thing for you personally in the next five years? It's funny because had you asked me that question two years ago pre-COVID or two and a half years ago pre-COVID, my answer would have been very different. But looking back over the last two years, we've, as a business, done incredible stuff that I didn't think we were capable of. So we built a delivery business, which is now one of the best in the country. We built a, an ambient store business, which sends people beautiful goods to their homes. And that wasn't even in our minds three years ago when COVID happened and we dreamt it up. So what excites me for the next five years it's perhaps the unknown, just dreaming stuff up to make magic. And each year being better than the last, each rest, new restaurant being better than the previous one. Deep and don't dilute, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Kavi, thank you so much for your time today. That was amazing speaking to you. Just such a wonderful overview of Deschum and wider, wider topics. Thanks a lot. Thanks so much, Fred. Thanks so much for listening. This has been What The Lux. You can find us on socials at Matter of Form and drop us any questions or comments on Twitter using the hashtag WhatTheLux. And if you're a luxury brand looking for strategy or design that goes beyond the banal, get in touch via hello at matchreform.com and chat to one of our consultants. And so, until next time. <laughs>